0: Welcome to Auckland Conversations. Ideas for becoming the world's most livable city.
1: Housing. I'm Bernard Hickey. I'm going to be your host for tonight. Unfortunately, Fran O'Sullivan couldn't make it. She sends her apologies. She's not well in the middle of winter. We often get those, those colds, don't we? Uh, luckily, we're all here in good hearts, with good voices, to have a good old chat about housing. Firstly I'd like to uh, uh, welcome you here and also our audience online. So we have a group of people who are watching us online from no doubt all around the world. A bunch of New Zealanders and others who are very keen to find out what's going to happen in the most important city in New Zealand. Uh, Not to mention the biggest city in New Zealand. Should they come back? Is it a good place to be? Um, Welcome in uh, all those people online. And there is a fan zone outside who will be talking about this as well. Uh, uh, it's that sort of topic in Auckland. Everyone cares about housing. I'd also invite you to tweet uh, here today. For those who follow me, I'm Bernard C. Hickey, Bernard Chicky, online. For those who, who uh, are on, on Twitter, I, I find it a, f- a fascinating way to see how the world's uh, seeing things. Uh, and the hashtag to use, as they say these, de- these days, the hashtag is AKL conversations. One word. It's always one word when it's a hashtag, isn't it? Uh, also some some uh, health and safety uh, warnings. I always have to do this. So the bathrooms are at the back of the lobby area uh, next to the doors. And in the unlikely event of an emergency, an alarm will sound and we will be directed out of the building by our ushers, so if the alarm sounds, um, I'm not going to do the the, uh, the New Zealand thing with the, the arms, and I, I don't have the, the face mask or anything, but be sure that if the alarm sounds, we'll, we'll have some ushers to, to help us out. We'd also like to acknowledge our sponsors uh, for today, um, and without the ongoing backing of our sponsors, we can't really have conversations like this, so I would like to formally thank uh, the sponsors, uh, they are, include Razine and Jib and the program supporters who are Brookfield lawyers, Boffa Meskel, the architectural designers of New Zealand, the New Zealand Institute of Architects and the New Zealand Planning Institute, as well as the New Zealand Green Building Council. So without further ado, let's talk about the most important topic in New Zealand right now. It absolutely is the Auckland housing situation, challenge, some would call it crisis, it's certainly the topic du jour, and I can say this actually as a Wellingtonian, a former Aucklander who now lives in Wellington, covering politics and economics in, in New Zealand, and uh, uh, it turns out every conversation we have in Wellington is all about Auckland as well. So, uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago, I was sitting at a select committee in a very Wellington place, full of very Wellington people, all wearing their Wellington ties, and all they were talking about was Auckland housing supply. The Reserve Bank governor came out and said the most crucial event this year was the decision on the unitary plan. Uh, we have all sorts of discussions about how to solve the Auckland situation and uh, lots of talk about demand and supply and, and land and all sorts of things. So it is the most important topic, and for very good reason. Some would say it's the roadblock at the heart of the New Zealand economy. Not just in economic terms, but in social terms. The government is very interested and concerned about Auckland because it pays $2 billion in subsidies for housing, a big chunk of that in Auckland, including $1.2 billion for accommodation supplements and just on $800 million in income-related rent subsidies for Housing New Zealand properties. Our houses are now, in Auckland, worth 10 times income. That puts us in the top one or two in the world when it comes to house prices to income ratios. The costs of New Zealand housing, so this is rents or mortgages, are the second highest in the OECD after Greece. And that's not a good place to be, has to be said. Uh, This is incredibly important, um, not just for our economy. We have a reserve bank right now which many would say should be cutting interest rates and getting our currency down to help our exporters, but is nervous about adding more fuel to the fire that is burning not just in Auckland now but in many other parts of the country. We have people living in cars. We have kids who are shifting from school to school. In some parts of Auckland, the... rate of people bouncing from one school to the next is more than 50% per year. So 50% of the kids, by the end of the year, they're not there because they're bouncing from one rental property to the next. It dominates our economy. It dominates our society, how you live, how much it costs, where you live. And that's what we're talking about here today. And we're going to have a chance to have a discussion with our panellists, And also open it up for a discussion with the audience. Uh, uh, Because this is a conversation we need to have. Some of these conversations are quite hard. And for those of you who have been around for the last couple of years, it can be quite controversial. But the only way that we move forward here is to have real conversations. Ask some sometimes tough questions, but listen to the answers. And hear from other points of view because uh, one of the risks here is that we don't have a conversation and some decisions, be they tough or otherwise, aren't made. So today we have a fantastic set of panellists who uh, come to this debate with lots of expertise, have looked into it, often they're working on it full time, and they have a real history of thinking hard and working hard and researching hard on these issues. Uh, Firstly, we have Helen O'Sullivan, who is the CEO of Ockham Residential. She was previously the CEO of the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand. Uh, Helen now heads up one of Auckland's most innovative property development companies. Helen is also a chartered accountant and has extensive experience within the property and finance sectors. With her ability to work within complex and challenging environments, we're looking forward to Helen sharing her insights from within the industry on growth and housing in Auckland and I'm really looking forward to hearing more from Helen on that. So Helen O'Sullivan here from Ockham Residential. We also have Arthur Grimes who is a senior fellow at Motu Research. Arthur here is uh, an adjunct professor of economics at Victoria University, he's a board member of the Financial Markets Authority and chairs the Hugo Group. He was the Reserve Bank of New Zealand's chairman from 2003 to 2013. Prior to that, Arthur was the director of the Institute of Policy Studies at Victoria University, the chief executive of Southpac, and the chief economist at both the Reserve Bank of New Zealand and the National Bank of New Zealand. And Arthur's work in many areas of tax policy, land policy, uh, land taxes... Uh, the metropolitan urban limit uh, are really uh, are hugely important in shaping the debate that we're having right now. In fact, many of the the things that we're seeing coming out from governments and other places ha- have li- have come directly or indirectly from Arthur's work. So we also have Carlos Chambers from Generation Zero. Uh, Carlos is a member of Generation Zero. Uh, that's an organisation of young New Zealanders working to cut carbon pollution through smarter transport, livable cities and independence from fossil fuels. He's also a co-founder and chief executive of Common Ledger, which is a cloud uh, product providing data plumbing for accounting firms. He currently lives in Wellington, but foresees living in New Zealand's largest city in the future. Uh, he brings a balanced perspective having lived in both cities, and I suspect most of us here have actually lived lived in both cities at some some point. That's the thing about Auckland, Uh, even if you don't live there, you care about it. And uh, even if you don't live there, you may have lived there in the past. And if you're living overseas, hello to all the people overseas, you may want to come here in future. It's a really big uh, topic, actually, for for New Zealand as a whole, uh, what's happening with Auckland housing. So I'm going to um, kick off today uh, with uh, a chat and hear the views of Helen O'Sullivan from Ockham Residential. Helen's in a a really uh, unique position in, in that she is on the ground building really interesting types of houses that could play a huge role in solving some of the issues we have with housing supply. So Helen, I'd like to ask you to set the scene, if you like, for... Your views on what are the issues with Auckland's housing, particularly around supply, and what's happening uh, from your point of view over the next six to 12 months, a year or so, that could improve that.
2: Okay. Thank you, Bernard. Um, just to clarify one point, I've never lived in Wellington. <laughs> I've lived in Sydney and I've lived in London, uh, but I'm in Auckland and born and bred. I love the city. We at Ockham love Auckland and we want to see Auckland's our urban built environment become as beautiful as our physical environment it's, uh, and it's a really you know, we look at Auckland and the reality is if we keep going out uh, at the pace that we're doing it we're going to annex Hamilton quite soon in fact Pocono technically is in Waikato so we've started already I'm sure Hamilton will be delighted to hear that they're going to become a suburb of Auckland sometime soon so the reality is, you know, if you want to make um, Auckland bigger, you've got to make it bigger uh, both up and out. I think part of the up question, though, and I mean we focus on up, You know, Greenfield's development is uh, kind of all very well, but it's not really the gig that we play in. We're medium density developers. We call ourselves urban regenerators, because one of the things we want to see is our urban environments, the existing suburban landscapes, um, be re engineered to meet the challenges of a new, uh, or to meet the new challenges of the city we are today and the city we're going to be in the future. And the reality is that the pork discussions that are going on at the moment are one of the most important discussions um, for Auckland's future, and the people who really ought to be represented at those hearings are too busy bunking off at primary school to attend. So, you know, for us, we talk a lot at Ockham about what we call the missing middle. You know, there is the uh, existing standalone environment, <clears throat> there's a small increase in density when you move into the terraced housing uh, space, and then at the other end of the spectrum is the bona fide apartment. The reality is, yes, the apartments are part of the answer because, you know, that creates capacity in parts of Auckland. but. You know, bonafide apartment buildings, you know, over four storeys, they're expensive to build. You know, you've got basements, you've got lifts, you've got vertical transport, you've got mechanical ventilation. Uh, They are not cheap to build. And as a result, you know, size and price become the two uh, parts of the equation that determine, you know, what it's going to cost you. What's missing, to a large degree in our view, is the middle. You know, so three-level character flats... Of the kind we used to build in the 50s and 60s, for some bizarre reason we sort of stopped. You look at places like Melbourne and Sydney, and that's what you see, you know, suburb after suburb after suburb, long before you uh, hit green fields and long before you get into your you know, big green spots again. Uh, and personally, I love them. You know, you look at them, you see them in Mission Bay, you see them in Hearn Bay, you know, people look at them and go, yeah, those are pretty cool. You know, it's so, and bulk and form wise they are no more dominant than a townhouse environment, but you can sensibly build them with you know two, one and two bedroom units. and the reality is uh, somewhere in the next sort of year you know 12 months, households with one and two people will become fifty percent of Auckland households. You know, we don't need three and four and five bedroom townhouses to house those people. Uh, and for a lot of the people who are going to be living in that situation, they don't want a giant, you know, personally, the quarter acre a nightmare in my world. I don't want gardens. <laughs> and it's, it's about providing options. You know, the reality is, I also don't want to live in Pocono. It's lovely, but it's two hours on the, you know, the southern car park every day to and from the city I love. So I want to live in places like, like Avondale and Grey Lynn and. You know, those are the places that our, uh, you know, our sort of coming back, expats returning to New Zealand want to live. Those are the places my parents want to live as they get to deciding they want to move out of their giant house with garden. You know, why are we going to force everybody to move into the city, uh, because that's the only place you're allowed to have any kind of density, uh, and move away from their existing communities? To us, you know, going to that three-level option Around lots of the existing suburban near transport networks, near ridges, you know, all of those are the places uh, that we can start fitting in the new generation of Aucklanders.
1: Well, that's uh, that set the scene for a different type of housing in Auckland and how Auckland could be slightly different. I'd like now to um, uh, show you a video, which uh, was recorded during a series of interviews for a council research project called Housing Challenges. Insights into views on the housing and growth challenges facing Auckland. Now this report will be available online soon and the people appearing here tonight in this video have given their permission for us to share their experiences with you. So we'd just like you to play you like to play you this video on housing challenges.
2: I just don't think there's gonna be there are going to be enough houses to cater for people and they're not affordable. Definitely not. So People are either going to move out, start moving out of Auckland, which they're already doing, um, or they're just going to have to pay really ridiculous amounts, and then there'll be all sorts of other sort of social factors in terms of of that. You know, there's always going to be trade-offs for having to sort of stay in Auckland. I mean, people are stuck. Like, what are they going to do? I really want a townhouse, um, because townhouses, I see that
3: it's got quite close neighbours around, so I feel there's a bit of security, just having other people around in case we're not, because I work full time, so if I'm not home someone might see something if anything happened. I, th- I think that uh, we've got to have a lot more big apartment buildings on the main feeder roads like Sydney or any in London, anywhere in the world, the Rimura roads, Great South Road, Dominion Road, Great North, New North, all these roads. Yeah. We've sold a commercial property two years ago in Grey Lynn and they put up a six story building. Why not ten? What difference does it make? You know, six is stupid. It should be ten or
4: twelve. I feel um, sad that so much green is disappearing. Too many paddocks are being gobbled up for housing. And I think that we do need to go up rather than out. And cities in the world do that. Well, yeah, before we were in emergency housing, I was quite ignorant and indifferent to the the needs of of housing and um but when we were put in that situation my eyes were opened and i just saw there's there's just such a massive need for that and i just met i met so many families that were homeless and oh and in that
1: situation yeah and that situation i would never thought of it like you know sort of what that it was that crucial you yeah, we knew it was but until we
4: i mean we were lucky to even have emergency housing there were people on waiting lists just to get, living in cars with families, sorry.
1: Yeah.
4: And it's, yeah. it's just, you know, it's a real huge need. And it's, it's not nice to see children you know, <coughs> suffering. And you know, I just think how, you know, blessed we were to be chosen to even go into emergency housing. Mm. So, yeah, it's, yeah, the counselling there or whoever... Besides all this, they need to really look at it. There's, um, there's, you've got to resolve homelessness up here in Auckland. It's
1: just yep. it's shocking. Well there we have it. a few views on um, what's needed and what's wanted with the Auckland housing crisis. I'm calling it a crisis. I don't know about you, but um, after seeing those uh, points of view and reporting and hearing of what's been happening, particularly around Te Puri and Marae over the last uh, month or two, um, it's clear that we need to fix this crisis. I'd like now to um, bring Arthur Grimes into the conversation. Arthur's been uh, covering uh, uh, Auckland's land supply and housing issues for decades, Arthur, and has certainly done an enormous amount of research into this. Arthur, could you give us an outline of, of what you think, think the issues are and what are some of the things that could be done or should be done?
5: Yeah, OK, thanks, uh, Bernard. So let's, uh, you know, we're starting off from a situation now where house price, the median house price in Auckland is somewhere around a $1 million. Five years ago, it was somewhere around $600,000. And when I was talking to politicians uh, five years ago, so we're all saying, house prices are too high, uh, you know, we, we don't want them to go up any further, and if I'd said, you know, what, what do you really want to happen? They say, they should level out about now or maybe just gradually trickle down. So if all the politicians five years ago were saying 600000 median house price is high on the high side and it shouldn't go up any further, I think we should set ourselves a target now of looking for a collapse in house prices of at least 40% in Auckland. Okay? And that should be a political... Um, a, approach where central government and local government politicians should be out there saying we're trying to do, have policies in place that will collapse house prices in Auckland by at least 40% because that will only take them back to a level where they were too high already five years ago. Okay? Was there any so asleep
1: sleep before now? they never
5: asleep <laughs> now. So, and when I've put this to politicians, they're not too keen on it. But anyway, that's <laughs> why I'm not a politician, um, nor am I a central banker anymore, thank <laughs> God. But it's um, uh, but I think that, that you know, realistically, we had to do that, right? Because even at $600,000, prices were too high for many people to be able to afford a house in, in Auckland. How do we um, then go about trying to achieve that? Well, I remember 40 years ago, my father was teaching in Freemans Bay. Uh, it was a slum, and, um, and it was starting to be intensified. You know? And so we could intensify slums. That was okay. Uh, we need to intensify elsewhere in Auckland as well. Okay, I don't think there's any doubt. It doesn't matter whether it's Freeman's Bay, Parnell, Remuera, Kohimarama or wherever, uh, Ellerslie, the types of places that um, uh, Helen was just talking about, we certainly need to, in- to intensify. Uh, I grew up part of my childhood, my teenage years, in on on Tamaki Drive. I can't understand why that whole area from O'Rake to St Heliers is not like the Gold Coast. Basically, in my, in my experience, in my sort of experience of other cities and things, you would expect anywhere with those sorts of beaches close to Auckland would be line to line skyscrapers all the way along there, and that's you know the kind of Auckland that I think that I would expect, and I think young people would expect. Old, you know, the old people won't. And I'm sort of in between. You know, I, I, my mother only lived, lived there until a, until a couple of years ago. And uh, clearly that population there didn't want that. But they're the old population. We've got to think about the next population. We've got to think about Carlos's generation, not, not mine or my, mom, or my mother's. So if, uh, when it comes down to it, the prices are essentially... I'm an economist, eh? It's a, just a straight demand and supply equation. We've got extra demand in Auckland. Is that a bad thing? No, I think it's a fantastic thing. Auckland's a small city, right? It's the fifth largest city in Australasia. It's quite a small place. It's a bit like Adelaide. Not very significant, but it's going to be... People want to come here. It's going to become more significant over time. Uh, We may even be able to rival Perth one day. And, uh, you know, um, so we've got to think about... Stop this idea that Auckland's large, Okay, It's a very small sort of local place. But so it's not a demand problem. It's a supply problem. We need to to just flood the market with with extra houses, extra apartments um, of all types... Uh, to bring these prices back down by at least 40%, to, um, so that people of the next generation can afford them. Uh, when I hear planners talk, I get really, and, and some of my colleagues in the economics profession, I get really sad that they've forgotten the first lesson of economics, that, you know, we, we, we talk about um, uh, we need to build 10,000 houses or 20,000 houses or something like that. that that's nonsense. It's a nonsensical way to talk, uh, because... It's, if, it depends on if you want to build 10,000 houses, you get one price. If you build 50,000 houses, you'll end up with another price. If we can flood the market with 200,000 houses, we'll get an entirely different price. Okay? So the, whenever you hear somebody saying we need to build 10,000 houses or 20,000 houses, you know they've forgotten the very first lesson in economics. Okay? There's, there's no such thing as just a, sort of a number like that. It depends what price you're trying to end up with. So I'd be trying to you know, flood the, house, the, um, the market with, with extra houses. That means we're going to have to go up means we're going to have to go out. means we have to intensify in, in existing suburbs uh, to, get, to get these sorts of um, uh, prices down. Now, one of the things I've done a lot of work on is the issue of um, not just intensification, but whether Auckland should go out or not. Uh, Auckland doesn't actually have that large an area. It's, it's a myth that Auckland is a particularly, dent, you know, particularly um, sp- sprawling city. Portland, for instance, has a lower density than Auckland does, uh, and Portland's often held up as a, as a sort of a magnet. Um, the big worry, of course, in, in, up, until now, has been climate change, right? We don't want the city to sprawl because of transport links and, and, the, and the cost of petrol-driven cars and the, and the, and the carbon that that, um, that uh, spews into the atmosphere. But again, we've got to think about the next generation, and the next generation is going to be driving electric cars, probably autonomous vehicles. The, the argument against sprawl based on climate change is completely, uh, essentially has completely gone away. Um, because people won't be driving internal combustion engine cars in 20 years' time. Uh, that means that that whole argument of people driving and putting carbon into the atmosphere when we're planning now for 20, 50, 100 years ahead is, is a spurious one. We no longer have to think that way. Okay? We've just got to make sure that the uh, infrastructure for the electric cars goes ahead and with the climate change problem goes away. The other problem that people raise is um, that somehow that farmland is worth, um, is, 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 is worth something. It's not. Okay, just ask any dairy farmer. Farmland now is not <laughs> worth anything. And, uh, and sheep and beef farms are actually worth any, any, even less. Okay? It's far better to put people on land than cows on land. And uh, we've got to make that land available for people to get on uh, so that they can get houses built, flood the houses built, flood the market with houses, bring those prices down.
1: Arthur, thank you very much. And um, you've left us with lots of things to chew on, which we will in the next uh, hour or so. But first, I'd like to hear from Carlos, who's from Generation Zero. Uh, to get a perspective from the generation who'll be around here in 50, 60 years' time, Well, I'm planning still to still be alive at 100, tell us about what your generation is saying. Sure,
0: Bernard. Yeah, and that's primarily the, the perspective that I'm here to represent tonight. Um, I guess I am the yo- or I assume I'm the youngest one on the panel, and <laughs> I, I think it, it is a very important perspective in the Auckland in the conversation about what is the future of housing in Auckland. From our from our perspective and what we're seeing, Generation Zero is, you know, the problem is part of the key problem in the in the housing crisis as you've called it, Bernard. Is it's an access problem, so. Our, our view is that access to housing is a fundamental and a universal right. doesn't matter if it's ownership or rental or another form but everyone deserves that right. And what we've what we've seen in New Zealand what we've what we've essentially seen play out is a really strong culture of home ownership which has created some barriers to the current generation and, and future generations accessing that right of of um, housing. So that is that's sort of the the frame for the problem or part of the frame for the problem. Then I think another important point is that what you see playing out again again at both the micro and the the, the top level and the and the bottom level is we have this prioritization of those interests who do own own lots of the the housing stock and it's often those interests are locally focused they're not so focused on the wider community needs or indeed the needs of future generations but those interests are pretty often well-resourced quite well organized and you know very participatory in the conversation so you get this this kind of, um, you're on the back foot if you're in the younger generation or you're in the future generation right from from the word go. And I've seen that play out myself and when I was living in in Milford in Auckland, um, I was fortunate to be staying with a a family friend and there was a proposal to build a set of apartments, um, four-story apartments in Milford Town Centre with a bit of commercial as well. And the community of homeowners there who had two-storey or one-storey houses, small number of them, but incredibly well organised organised against this, and basically put, uh, I haven't actually caught up with where it's at now, but certainly the wheels were falling off that development as a result of the pressure. So our sense is that that is a really important thing to pay attention to. I'm heartened by the national policy statement on urban development capacity, which does explicitly acknowledge that. It acknowledges that often the local interests are prioritized ahead of wider and wider community and future generations, and there is some proposal to impose uh, requirements on local councils, like Auckland Council, to pay attention to that in some of their planning and and resourcing the housing market decisions. It's early, it's out for consultation, but our sense is that that is is a really important paradigm. And I guess it it, it leads me to another point, which is, I think, another question is, what sort of frame do you think about in terms of your timescale and your solutions when you're thinking about the Auckland housing market and I, I, I do agree with Helen that we need to fill the gap in the, in the medium density. I agree with many of Arthur's arguments, but I also w- I think what's really critical is we take a 10-, a 20-year, long-term view on this and we don't just think about how many more thousand houses do we need two years from now and what do we want those houses to look like. And it goes to that point about um, current and future generations. Final thing I would raise is... Um, our, our sense on the quarter-acre dream is that it is, there is this new dream emerging, a, a new Kiwi dream, perhaps. It's not super well understood or clearly articulated, but for young people living in Auckland, and we learned a lot of this through our unitary plan engagement process and the thousands of submissions which we gathered, there is this different concept of what a good life looks like and we know that housing is at the core of a good life for almost everyone, um, but young people are, they're revaluing the, the core pillars of that good life and the housing solution that your um, average young Aucklander looks at as as what they want today, and I've been talking to a few in the audience before this, is, is very different to the quarter acre dream. You, know, you sort of envisage a three bedroom house on the outskirts of the city with that garden that Helen doesn't want to look after. Um, That's not what a lot of the young Aucklanders who we talk to and who we've heard from are interested in. It it is more about proximity. Proximity is often more important than space. And there's there's, you know, you're valuing nearness, being close to amenities, close to work, close to play. And you're willing to take hits on other things like having an outside area um, you know, the I, I do live in Wellington now, I anticipate being a, back in Auckland in the not too distant future, in Wellington I live within about 600 metres of, of my work, I skate or bike to work, I spend this many hours a week in the car, and it, it's fantastic. So. These are some of the, the tenets of this, this new Kiwi dream which is emerging and, and we're super interested in.
1: So Carlos, um, putting my Devil's Advocate hat on, what would you say to those people in Milford who appear to have blocked this three, four story development? What would you say to them to convince them to change their minds?
0: I think to Arthur's point, you need to think about your children and and your children's children and... If it's important, if you've lived in Milford for, you know, many years of your life, you've benefited from that. It's a fantastic suburb, it's by the beach, you know, you've you've now got a great bus busway link into the city, then why shouldn't more people, including your children and their children, have that have that same lifestyle? But they will not be able to have that if we can't increase the density in places like Milford.
1: So let's say I put my Milford um, homeowners hat on and say to you, uh, when you have a family, you want to have a backyard just like I've, I have, and your um, push for all these apartments and townhouses is robbing the next generation of the backyards.
0: I think that urbanisation as a, as a macro trend is something which many of us cannot avoid. You know, in, in New Zealand, contrary to what a lot of us think, we are one of the most urbanised nations in the world. That's a trend that is only going one way. So maybe 20 years ago, you know, my parents did have a garden in the city, and maybe 20 years from now, I won't be able to have a garden in the city. I do think there are other very well-proven ways to achieve the same outcomes. You know, concepts like shared spaces or, you know, a community garden shared between a block of apartments could potentially achieve the same outcome. The reality is, in, in Milford, you can walk down onto the beach and you know have fantastic space and and um, you know a, a wonderful natural environment. So,
1: great, Arthur. Um, uh, there's a whole bunch of people in the audience here who own property. Who here in the audience owns property? Who here has it as their main source of uh, asset value, the thing they're going to rely on when they retire? Arthur, on 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 their behalf. Are you really saying you want their house prices to fall 40%? Absolutely.
5: <laughs> a, ab, absolutely, because most of the people in this audience would have bought their house, houses when they were far less than $600,000 median. They, they still made a, made a fortune out of it, right? And if they bought them more recently, um, I was asked just before, you know, what would I advise young, or young people who are trying to buy their first house? And I'd say, don't. You know? And it's, it's like when gold was $2,000 an ounce. Well, people, it's now $1,200 an ounce. Those people lost a lot of money because they, they bought them at a ridiculous bought it at a ridiculous price. People who buy assets at too high a price lose money. That's what happens with every asset, right? Yep. And it's just, it's just tough luck, you know? I mean, they shouldn't have bought it at that price.
1: But could our
5: economy handle something like that? Oh, absolutely. The banking system is very well capitalised. Um, uh, if Auckland house prices fell 40%, there'd be very few people that would actually uh, go under because most people have, you know, the stock of people who've got houses... Um, most of those people won't have any problems at all. Um, it wouldn't have a, have a major uh, effect on, the, on, say, the financial stability. Uh, some people will, will lose as, they, as everyone loses. I mean, look at what, what happens to farm prices. They go up, they go down. You know, people just got to get, you know, if you, if you make a bad, bad investment, you live with it.
1: Now, what about the argument a supply shock with, you know, typically hundreds of thousands of houses or whatever the big number would have to be to actually drive through that, that sort of price cut? Have we got the labourers and the tradies but, to be able to build all those houses? Can we really do that?
5: Not this year, no. no. Uh, and <laughs> not next year. So it's a, it's, this has to be a, a consistent um, policy that successive local and central government politicians need to enable over 10, 20 years because uh, the problem's built up over that time. I remember writing reports that you saw 10 years ago saying we're going to have this problem because of what was being done 10, 20 years ago. right? So that we're living with those, with what, we're living now with the uh, after-effects of the policies of 10 or 20 years ago. We have to build the policies now and keep them in place for 10 or 20 years to get those extra to flood the market. You're not going to flood the market overnight. Helen?
2: Can I just, to, to your point, Arthur, about the way the price has increased, one of the reasons why that house price has increased so much is that so much of the supply that has come to market over the past two and three years has been above the median house price. And maths being as it is, that just means the median house price keeps getting higher because so much of what's being delivered is in the most expensive price point in the market because for developers that's one of the most profitable places to go. You know, if I've paid a million bucks for a piece of land in Ellerslie, I'm not going to put a $400,000 house on it. So... You know, that's where changing the density paradigm and enabling that 1,000 square metres in Ellerslie to be 10 two-bedroom units at $600,000. You haven't changed house values, but you have changed house prices. And that's a lot safer.
1: So what would you say to uh, voters, councillors on the issue of... uh, uh, allowing more of these three, four-storey apartments that you're looking to build? Because I I, uh, sat through a council meeting a few months ago where this was quite a heated topic. Uh, And what would you say to them to say, actually, you may not uh, know much about these three, four-storey apartments, uh, but they could actually be quite good. Yep. So t- what, what would you say to them to convince them?
2: I would challenge them to look at an, an, an exemplar development that we've actually done in Ellerslie, where you've got 10, on a piece of land you could have built $3 million townhouses, we have 10 uh, two bedroom units which we've retained as investments, but the reality is had we sold them that had been at that $600,000 price point, three times the housing supply two thirds of the price point and the way we've built it, 25% more green space than you would get in the townhouse arrangement. These are price points that Aucklanders can achieve in places that they want to live. Um, how is that a bad outcome uh, in the current in the environment we've got today?
1: So again with my devil's advocate hat on, uh, having uh, bought a few houses around, around the world and the first question I always asked was, uh, is it freehold? Is it leaky? Apartments are just full of non-freehold, leaky buildings. What do you say to, to me?
2: I say we don't touch leasehold in the residential environment because it doesn't work. So I would agree with you. If it's leasehold, I won't, I wouldn't touch it. Um, And that's where we, you know, the point I think I made in my opening statement, that's where the materials palette's absolutely fundamental. If you're going to do density, medium density, you've got to do it well. And that's not just about design, although design's really critical, but the material palette is fundamental. You cannot build them out of things that need replacing in 25 years' time. That's just irresponsible.
1: So what's stopping us from doing this right now? Go for your life.
2: (laughs) The rules, basically. For us as developers, we will go where we can build that kind of thing uh, at reasonable price points. We're looking for those kind of opportunities. I don't know that the rest of the market necessarily is. Uh, and in lots of parts of the city where people would buy that stuff at those sort of price points, the rules just don't let you do it. And if you're gonna run into you know, the train that the developers in Milford hit, why would you why don't you just choose the easy places to go and go and build there? There's more than enough to do. Why would you pick the hard stuff?
1: Arthur, you mentioned the prospect of uh, going out as well as going up, uh, and that um, climate change maybe not so much of an issue because we'd be um, uh, driving around or, or being driven around in uh, electric uh, autonomous vehicles. Do you really think that's going to happen and and if, if if we do look to go out, Who's going to pay for all these roads and pipes and things, which currently are pretty expensive?
5: Yeah, they are. Um, No, I absolutely think the technological revolution is 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 uh, is here, and uh, it is an electric future. Um, Like you, I I I commute by by bike, but it's an electric bike, you know. So it's, um, uh, and um, it's um, so I I think the future is there. It will will be electric in terms of automotive. The infrastructure is is the difficult one. Uh, I am the New Zealand Productivity Commission I think looked um, very favourably upon urban development authorities, Uh, I don't really care whether they are council run or private sector run and if they're private sector run I don't care whether they're um, domestic or foreign, it's all all the same basically it's the outcome that you want Uh, very large development I think makes a lot more sense than um, small uh, add-ons because you have to be able to put the infrastructure and plan the infrastructure really really well Um, the one of the things I've always been, been hot on, and we used to have it in the Town and Country Planning Act till 1956, was um, that um, when the area is rezoned from rural to urban, there's a massive uplift in value. Okay? And at the moment, what happens is that the person who owns that rural land suddenly gets becomes a multimillionaire by fiat of the council gifting them the, the, uh, plant, the ability to, to, to make that urban. Okay? In any other country in the world... That would be um, just rampant corruption in that, in that area. And as far as I can ascertain, there's zero of that in New Zealand. We're saints, basically. Okay, but just you can, can imagine if you can get your land rezoned from rural to urban, you become just immensely rich overnight for having done nothing. In my view, the, the Public Works Act should be used um, to, to basically uh, get the rural land, and it's going to be used for housing. Uh, the council should um, designate it under the Public Works Act or central government. Uh, should be some premium paid over the rural land value to the, to the farmer. And then uh, all the betterment value, all the uplift in value, goes to the council, which it can use to pay for the infrastructure. Uh, this is the way that the Hutt Valley Railways were built back in the 1920s. Uh, it's the way that many um, countries do it. In the United States, the land of the free, um, the TIFs, this is the way that they, they, they uh, plan their infrastructure and fund their infrastructure. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a well-tried route, and it's one that we stopped in, in the 1950s, unfortunately.
1: So what about all those land bankers? There's been a lot of talk about land bankers in the last um, couple, of, couple of months. There's, there's actually 96,000 sections that are identified uh, by um, the council and the government in special housing areas and beyond that could actually be built on. But they're not being built on. What, what could be done to get this land into housing?
5: got to be very careful with those numbers. I think some of those are backyards that could be subdivided. Yes. Um, so you have to, you know, there's a lot of sleight for hand in those numbers. Okay. So, um, uh, well, I mean, I've always, we, we made a big mistake with the, when we did the amalgamation in Auckland, the uh, Royal Commission, uh, four of our local authorities at a land value uh, basis for their rates and three had a capital value for their rates. Um, the Royal Commission subsequently enacted in legislation by government was to move to a capital value rating system for everyone. A land value taxing, uh, taxation system for, for, for rates uh, f- encourages you to intensify on the land. Okay? A capital value one dis- disincentivises you from intensifying because you actually pay a rate on the structure. Uh, so we went with the wrong, the, the Royal Commission made a very bad decision. Uh, and very bad recommendation, and uh, I think we should reverse that and go back to a land value for basis for the, for the rateable side, so at least if you're holding a piece of land, you're mm. going to get rated more highly on it.
1: What about a land tax, which you suggested to the tax working group?
5: Yeah, well, that's, that's going the next step, uh, of course.
1: Mm. <laughs> so, so, Carlos, I can't work out why the young aren't revolting.
5: Some of that,
1: right? So, so like I'm. Let's say I'm young. I'm a renter. I'm looking ahead at a million-dollar house price in Auckland. I'm thinking about starting a family. Why aren't I doing more? I'm. I'm always talking to young people and going, "How come you haven't um, torched me?" So, why why do you think young people seem so disengaged from the process? Because when I look at the voting stats. Less than half of people between the age of 18 to 39 voted in the last general election. And by my measures, less, well less than 30% voted in the council elections. Why isn't there more engagement?
0: Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky question. I think that young people are engaged in debate and conversation and there's a lot of evidence of that, both in New Zealand... Well, there's a lot of evidence of that here in New Zealand. I think we've created some good proof points as Generation Zero. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the facts are clear. Young people don't vote in as high numbers at both local and central government elections, and, or, nor are I as engaged. You know, even if we look at the audience here tonight, it's fair to say most of, most of us here in the audience are not young people. Um, but I don't think <laughs> we're, we're all young. I, I've got a lot older since I started my own business as well, so I'm feeling like an older person. Um, I, but I think that there is—it's not that it's not that young people don't care. I think it's more nuanced than that. Certainly, I know a lot of a lot of my network and friends are dead set on on home ownership. They do aspire to that, and the Auckland market in particular is a a real barrier. I think there are also a growing number of young people who are less concerned about home ownership. I'm in that category. I've rented seven houses in the last decade. I have no aspiration to be a homeowner and the Sort How of,
1: are you going to get rich, though?
0: Well, well so, my, so my logic uh, and what in, I.
1: Because the only way to get rich in New Zealand is to buy a property. No, or a that's Severance, not true, and then, it, and then it, That has be been true. Gains.
0: But that's the past, not the future. The, what yeah. I would say to the homeowners in the audience is you have responded totally rationally to the market and to the structures that have been there. So I'm, you know, my, my parents are in that category. It's, I understand it. But the fundamental issue in New Zealand is that 52% of our private wealth is tied up in our residential housing market. And that's 52% which is not being put into useful, productive entrepreneurial activities and businesses. So the way that, well, getting rich is not a goal of mine, but the way that I will support myself and support my children is through building businesses like what we're doing with Common Ledger. And if you take that one more step, I really believe that we do need to move the needle on on New Zealand's economy. We need to shift it out of lower value, unproductive or less productive industries into much higher value, more productive industries like high value exports technology, which is a growing sector. So I think it's misleading to look at the past and say, home ownership was the pathway to richness and enriching yourself in success, the future looks, looks very different. And that's, to my first point, that's going to take time. That's a 10, 20-year cycle. It's not going to happen overnight, but there is a different future ahead for New Zealand. And, and I firmly believe in that, and that's why I'm not so obsessed about, about home ownership. And I know a lot of other people are starting to see things similarly.
1: Okay, I'd like to open
5: it so up. Can to I just come one very sure, com- quick comment it. on that? Before 2007, a lot of Americans thought home ownership was the route to riches, and government supported them into thinking home ownership was the route to riches. And we had colossal collapses in, in property prices, and bankruptcies, and you know people walking away with with zero equity, etc. Um, you know, and we've seen in New Zealand uh, over the years where many people have lost money on houses. Okay, there are quite a few. Uh, Houses in Gisborne at the moment are cheaper than they were. Um, houses in Invercargill once fell 30%. This, is, this does happen, and uh, I think we do have to learn from history that collapses do happen.
1: Time now to open it up to questions from the audience. We've got um, some people with some microphones coming around who will hand them over. A quick note before we ask questions. Uh, I'm based in the Parliamentary Press Gallery in Wellington, And one of the things that we pride ourselves on is asking pointed questions that aren't statements and that uh, elicit information. So I'd really love it if you could show me how good you are as questioners by asking questions that um, get some great information and debate going. Yes, let's go for it down here. Yeah, uh,
6: I'm Bob. (laughs) Bob McLaren. Um... Three things, three points I'd like to bring up. Am I talking too loud or what? Perfect. Uh, Three points I'd like to bring up that weren't mentioned. Um, To me, the whole housing situation, farms, whatever, is in the hands of speculators rather than young Kiwis. And my three points that I'd like to briefly just touch on concerning that is that as... For speculators, I would suggest that you own no more than 10 titles, which has been pretty generous. In other words, you can own a house or two or three, but nothing beyond 10. And from what I gather, there are plenty of speculators around who possibly have 20, 30, in the 100 maybe houses. And I would suggest that those speculators, through a... Act of Parliament to to immediately put those houses back on the market. Okay,
1: so your point is, let's limit the number of titles that people can have.
6: Exactly, farm and
1: houses. Yep. Um, Another point, I'd like
6: to say. How about about we limit it to that one for now? No, no, hang on. I've got three points here. The other. Yep.
0: you got a question for the, the panel? The other one
6: is uh, anyone who owns property in New Zealand has to be a citizen of at least three years. And another point I'd like to bring up That's is that... There's four, actually. At, at all our auctions, yep. you have to turn up in person, totally abolish telephone bidding.
1: OK, so there we have. The points are limit the number of titles to 10, uh, make sure you're a resident for three years and you can't turn up at the auction. Right, let's hear from our panel about whether that is a good idea or a bad idea. Arthur, well, you've talk about these you know, things?
5: When it comes down to it, it doesn't matter whether you're a speculator or a, or a fundamental owner, you're going to make a, a judgement as to whether the price is worth it or not. Um, and uh, if, you know, if you're in a market where the demand is going up uh, because there's more people coming and the supply's not going up as fast, the prices are going to go up. It doesn't matter whether it's speculators, it doesn't matter whether they're foreigners, it doesn't matter whether they're New Zealanders, all of that is irrelevant, basically it's trivial. Uh, we, we, you know, we're talking about the trivia here, right? It's, I think we've got to get, get onto the, you know, it's, it's basically how many people will need to live in the house. We, it's, it's not as if there's lots of spare houses out there. There's people are homeless you know, don't have a house, right? Um, so we've got a shortage of houses, uh, and the way you deal with shortages, it's the same as the avocados, right? $5 an avocado is because there aren't as m- enough avocados um, as as, would be, as we would like them to be, so they've gone up to $5. Get more avocados in the market, the price is going to come down to $3. It's the same with housing.
1: Okay. Right. Let's have a question at the back here. I have. Okay. Let's let's have let's hear from another person at the back of the room. My
5: question, I hope, is a specific one. I'd like to know from Arthur, from any of the panel, why is it principally why is it not possible to build genuinely affordable housing well inside the city limits?
1: Okay. Let's um, let's go to Helen, who's in the business of building these houses.
2: It's a really interesting question. Um, we are selling properties in Avondale that are priced from four hundred and ten thousand uh, dollars up to eight hundred thousand. They're medium density. We've sat and looked at the numbers ourselves and said, you know, why does it cost so much to build uh, in, you know, to build at this price? You've got land cost that's around 10%. You've got financing costs. You've got the cost of materials. You do have to make a margin, or you simply won't get finance for it. Uh, but it's not actually—you know—we're not sitting there on a 50 or 60% profit margin. The reality is that you know a house it's starting at four and five hundred thousand um, dollars is only possible in the medium-density space. Um, you know, and if that's what it costs to erect a structure in which people can sleep comfortably. Um, warm and dry, insulated, etc. after that, the land cost is obviously going to be a big part of it. Um, there isn 't room in the city center to put standalone houses that um, you know four hundred thousand dollars each. If it costs me a million dollars for the land i 've still got a 1.4 million dollar house once i 've um, built a structure on it you can sleep in.
1: Arthur, you've looked at the cost of land and yep. the fact that that is in, in house prices and housing costs.
5: Yep. Um, so I did a, um, something about a year ago where I, I went to a, a supplier of, of houses um, down, down in the southern North Island who put, do cottages, OK? And, they, and I said to them, how much do they do kit set cottages? I said, but they also erect them for you. I said, if you had to put a, one of these cottages on, on a piece of land in Auckland, uh, how much would it cost you fully built, you know? And he said it would be about $190,000, okay, just under $200,000. That's the structure, okay, not the land. Uh, so it is possible to put uh, a two-bedroomed uh, cottage onto, onto land in Auckland uh, where the structure costs less than $200,000. Um, and the, then the problem comes is, why would anybody with the expensive land that we've got now put a $200,000 structure on it? And, and that's the problem. The land is, if you're buying the section for $300,000 as a developer, you're going to be mad to put a $200,000 structure on it. And people put on, as, as Helen was alluding to before, they put a much more expensive structure. So it comes down to the problem, the fundamental problem is that the land is, is so expensive. Now, the way we free up land in, 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 um, in a planning process, we, we, we now have a forward sort of supply of, of land, uh, which essentially is designed to maximise the profits of the, of, the, of the people whose land are going to be opened up. So instead of opening up a whole lot of land, we open up, open up in, um, in dribs and drabs uh, so that each successive drib and drab gets a monopoly. And of course, what do they do? They're going to charge a monopoly price, right? It's, it's, a, it's a fundamentally absurd way to open up land, is to just do bits and pieces of it because we give those landowners uh, the monopoly to charge as much as the, you know, much as the market will bear. Uh, so, again, that's why I think the current system, planning system, is 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 absolutely um, uh, flawed in the way that we release land.
1: Um, can I just put my commentator's hat on, take my MC's hat off, and say that, from my point of view, one of the reasons that the cost of housing inside the city limits uh, is so high is because we have not allowed more dense development close to the CBD. We have a current planning set-up which says that we have what's called a donut with a candlestick in the middle. So the donut of development is out west and down south and up north. We have a a lot of development in the CBD around here, of course. But there's a donut of land around the CBD where currently the zoning rules, uh, uh, particularly after the 2013 discussion on the draft unitary plan, has meant that we're unable to build these three and four storey apartments that. Helen is talking about, where you could get some affordable one, two-bedroomed buildings. And I, as a commentator journalist, sat down at the February 24th meeting, uh, six hours long or so, and I suspect there were a few of you here at that meeting as well, where young people, particularly from South and West Auckland, pleaded to the council to allow for zoning rules to be put before the unitary plans Independent hearings panel, zoning rules that would allow these one- and two-bedroomed houses in three-, four-storey houses to be built. People from Housing New Zealand, people from various housing groups pleaded for these zoning rules to allow those houses to be built, but the council uh, laws, and I'm speaking here on my own personal uh, situation, the council laws decided... For whatever reason not to do that. Now we're going to hear a lot more back from the unitary plan in late July and then the council will have a vote come August 19 on that but in my personal view uh, uh, a unitary plan and zoning rules which will allow more dense high quality development in that donut area around the candlestick so inside the donut not outside inside the donut close to the CBD and transport routes would be a way to start reduce reducing the price and getting the supply shock, in that would deal with some of these crazy high prices we have at the moment. So let's go towards the back, just in the middle here. Yes. Yes. Um,
3: Oh, sorry. I was thinking when you were talking before, Bernard, before you started to describe what happens with the blockages that appeared with councillors in South Auckland when they had young people pleading. Do you think the blockage is mostly at the councillor level, who were probably closer to us in age, than Generation Zero, or is it just as much at national government level? I just don't see. We all seem to know the answers. We all seem to understand, given what Arthur has said, some of the policy problems are. How come these are not being recognised by our political representatives at local and national level? Because it seems to me they're not listening.
1: Okay, my personal view on this here is that you look straight to the raw electoral mathematics which are that property owners over the age of 60 vote at a rate of more than 80 to 90% in council elections. Renters under the age of 30, particularly in South and West Auckland, vote at a rate, by my assessment, at less than 20%. So if you're a councillor and you want to get re-elected, you appeal to the interests of old property owners on the fringes. Now, that's my independent commentator's view. That's not the view of anyone on council or the council itself, obviously, but that's my view of why you've got that. What I call it, and in fact, I'm not the only person who said this, why you have a democratic deficit. The Productivity Commission wrote a report uh, a year or so ago which referred to this issue where young renters are not represented at local uh, um, body electorate levels, and also um, there is an increasing view from Wellington by the central government that this democratic deficit, where a relatively small number of property owners are uh, very highly represented in the political process, and are not thinking of a national interest. So you could argue um, it's all about location, where you live is really important, and what's immediately close to you is incredibly important. But there are national implications. We have a really big problem in New Zealand with very poor productivity growth, particularly in the last 10 to 20 years, where we have not educated enough people to be able to be really productive. We have not built a big and strong enough city like Auckland that has lots of productive people in it, making New Zealand richer. And the end result is that we have a relatively poor economy per capita, and we are building a society with lots of poor, poorly educated people who aren't very healthy, in many cases because they're not living in stable, healthy housing, in many cases because they don't own it. That's my view of what's, what's happened there. Does anyone else have a particular view?
0: No, I'd yeah, probably support that, Bernard. And I think the other, you know, another interesting point is the average age of your local elected representative in New Zealand is early 60s nationally I suspect Auckland would be a, quite a bit younger than that but you know you just to your point exactly not only are the constituents not well represented but the the elected members are not well represented by those you know those younger generations those who will ultimately live the the life and bear the cost or the upside of those decisions that are made today
2: I think that's a really good point that you made earlier about the social justice element of it, Bernard. Like, access to stable housing is critical to ensuring that kids grow up with an education. And you know, not only are the people who are, uh, you know, not only Carlos's generation not necessarily voting, but Carlos's kids aren't voting. Yeah, and they're actually the people that we need to be thinking about in this process as well.
1: Yeah, uh, and increasingly, from what it's worth, in Wellington, the um, generations who are missing out on living in their own home or living in a reasonably affordable rental that's safe and warm and clean, that large number of people, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, uh, the central government is starting to think about this issue in a different way. They're starting to think, what would be the cost in the long run of a whole generation of, it's mostly Aucklanders, not being healthy enough or educated enough to be productive, happy people in the long run. People who aren't in good housing tend to cost the society a lot more in the long run. So the government has a thing called the social investment approach, where they look at the long-term liability of a group of people who are not healthy or well-educated or in stable situations. And the cost to the taxpayer at large is enormous. Secondly, that the long-term cost of not solving Auckland's housing crisis is borne by the rest of the country uh, to the extent, for example, that um, the Reserve Bank frankly should be cutting interest rates right now, but it can't because of what's happening where we are sitting right now. And that's costing the rest of the country in terms of not being able to export its socks off, become more productive, get connected to the rest of the world, and and be a much faster growing, richer economy. So, can we have another question from the side here?
5: I'm just to uh, So, your solution is a supply and demand. You, 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 you're sort of positing that it's a very simple solution, just flood the market away. Basic economics, you flood the market there's no profit, supply will quickly drop off but secondly, there's about 30% of people on low wage income that no matter how low you drop the price, they still their income levels are decoupled from any sort of house price, even if you drop the price by 50% from where it is so is this, I want to challenge you and say is this, this problem's not economic based it's politically based and no one wants to talk about we've really got a political issue here not an economic problem at all so, Arthur. I'm not, I'm not sure why why it's not an economic problem. Uh, Million-dollar houses, median house price seems to me to be an economic problem as well as a political problem. It's got a political genesis to it. Um, but don't forget, if you know if the house prices come down, the rents will come down too. So those people that you were talking about actually um, will be able to you know afford a, a better rental property or be, have a more affordable rental property than what, what they've got now. I mean, you just just imagine um, you know if, if we have an extra 10,000 houses in Auckland. Uh, very shortly, it'll have virtually no effect on price, right, out of 600,000 houses. If we could get 100,000 extra houses in Auckland, in a, in, you know, or 200,000 extra houses in Auckland, the price has to come down. But that's
1: like an economic myth. Like, you're property in unreality. You cannot build 100,000
5: well, OK, well, let, let's, take other, let, let's take Houston, OK? Let's take Houston. It's got a rapidly growing population, at least as fast as, as, as Auckland, uh, probably faster, and it has prices that are about a third of the level of Auckland's. Now, why is that? They've got, they've got population growth coming in. They've got you know, the, 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 the same sort of demand pressures that Auckland's got, and yet they allow the supply to come on stream. Yeah. If you allow the supply to come on stream, you actually do have an effect on prices. And, and also... Okay. No, it's ridiculous. Okay. You see, this is, this, is, no, this is a real elitist sort of argument, right? right? Why are there hundreds of thousands of people going to Houston to live If there was a terrible place, let let the people decide. Let the people say, "I want to go to this place, which is reasonably cheap to live, and I can bring up my family, and I can have my grandkids there." Let them make that decision. Don't leave it in the hands of people who want to stifle them. I'm not, you know. I mean, it's great for me to have a have a property in high priced Auckland. Okay, it's fantastic. Um, And. But it shouldn't be up to me. It should be up to the people who are going to be affected by that and who vote with their feet. And the people who are voting with their feet are voting to to go to Houston, so let them do it.
1: The other argument here to say, you know, well, short supply doesn't really matter with price, simply look at what happened in Ireland and in Spain where they did have, you know, a a slowdown, an economic slowdown, and the demand for housing dropped off. Uh, But because they'd built enormous numbers of new houses from 2002 to 2008 their prices dropped 30 to 40%. When you look at New Zealand house prices compared to what happened in Ireland and Spain and America, the real difference between us and them is that we had not built the supply so that when there was the demand shock, when demand dropped, our prices held up reasonably well. And I I agree with Arthur that a supply shock is one way, I think there's other things you can do as well, but one way to, frankly, deliver much more affordable housing. And for those people who say, oh, well, I wouldn't want to live in Houston, or um, how could you possibly do that because prices would drop and, you know, the economy would, would die. Actually, there is, um, in, in my view, an enormous cost that everyone here as is, is taxpayers is paying because house prices are too high. And there is a generation of kids and people who may not be in this room, who may not even be born yet, who are bearing the cost of... And it's not just a little bit high, these prices. We're used to it, right? We're used to reading in the paper about million-dollar house sales and three-bedroomed brick and tiles in pakaranga going for 900000 and we have this sort of little, little joke, and it's all very funny. But the, the real cost of that is born in the social costs and in the economic costs all around the country for generations to come. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen to push back for those people who say, let's keep things as they are. Yes, let's have a question up the front here.
5: My name's Richard Northey. Uh, three years ago, I was the councillor for Mangakikiki Tamaki, and I advocated that Onihanga and Pemur and Gleninus be intensified. So I got replaced as the councillor <laughs> for Mangakikiki Tamaki. <laughs> I'd, just, I'd like to ask a question about tax. That hasn't been mentioned today, and I wonder whether the panel, of what comments they have about whether any changes in the tax system could be fair and workable, could contribute to investment being moved into areas of production and better services and make housing more accessible. And it's not a total answer, but have they got any ideas on tax that could contribute in those areas? So so
1: my my view here is that um, New Zealand needs a land tax uh, and we actually have one pre-cooked and uh, the, 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 the chef is on the panel. <laughs> uh, 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 it was one put to the tax working group in 2009 and 2010. It's my understanding that the chair of the tax working group presented it to the Prime Minister as one of the preferred options for the big tax switch that we had. Instead we chose to increase GST, and transfer those incomes to a uh, lower income taxes uh, in a uh, um, distributionally neutral way. There, are, there is another option, which is to uh, bring in a land tax, uh, a simple, clean, low-rate uh, land tax, which uh, helps incentivise development and start to uh, collect uh, some tax on that wealth that has just landed like manner from heaven on a generation of property owners over the last 20 years and then to either redistribute that uh, income in the form of you could do it as a tax cut or you could do it as a GST uh, cut uh, or you could use some of it to frankly build some infrastructure and a whole bunch more, maybe the 100,000 houses that we have here. But I'll open it up to the panel about a tax as tax is is an issue.
0: Yeah I'll make a few comments. I think it's you know the argument that a capital gains tax will fix everything is is pretty false and shallow. I think. Um, I think there's some pretty easy wins which we could, which we which we could uh, take, which would have have a pretty immediate impact. At one small but important example is, you know, we let we let landlords offset the losses from their rental incomes against their other income, which maybe makes sense in the context of that business, their landlord business, but it does not make sense against their global income from their other sources of income or their other businesses. So little anomalies like that, which don't really make any sense, but would have small impacts, or would have probably quite large impacts, I think are are easy wins. I think the the tax system is a part of the solution, but it, it is only a part of it it's is more nuanced than, than just tax or just a capital gains tax.
2: I do think there's some contributions, I agree that there are some contributions the tax system could make. One of the easiest ways of reducing the attractiveness of residential property as simply an investment class would be to remove the deductibility for, in- for interest. Um, you know, same, in the same way as the deduction for depreciation was removed, and overnight that generated some phenomenal sum of money without inventing a really complicated system. Uh, as you have, you know, capital gains taxes are complicated because politically they're hard to sell, and because as soon as you start having exemptions for the family home, they fall apart. And if you look at Australia, where they do have a comprehensive capital gains tax, um, that actually, you know, sure they're not as bad as us. We've we've quietly overtaken them, but you can't say to Australia that Sydney and Melbourne have got brilliantly controlled house prices either.
1: So the issue of uh, tax deductibility for rental property investors, uh, Treasury proposed that as an option to the government uh, a couple of years ago, and the government chose not to take that up. And um, repeatedly, uh, not just the government, but also the opposition have shied away from Capital gains tax, for the very reasons, uh, Richard, uh, that um, they're politically unpopular amongst those who vote, and um, I just like to make a, 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 um, I just like to make a plea to those people. What sort of New Zealand will we have in fifty years' time, if our home ownership rate keeps dropping as it has over the last thirty years? It's dropped twenty percentage points for people from a Māori and Māori background. It's dropped 35 percentage points for people from a Pacifica background. Across the population in Auckland, it's dropped from over 70% to close to 50% now, particularly in some parts of the the city. In some parts of Auckland, particularly South Auckland, 80% of the properties being bought now are being bought by rental property investors. We are inventing a landlord nation for generation rent. What sort of future is that going to be? Now, there are a bunch of people who are going to be rich because of that, like the 29-year-old who rang up Radio Live a couple of weeks ago and said he had 43 properties and wanted to get to 100, and the banks were keen to lend to him to do that. But how are we going to build up healthy, happy families when we have a generation rent living in unaffordable, potentially not healthy properties. I just don't think that's a feature we want but that's my personal view we have a question from the back over here
5: yeah. well, I' just i will just say I mean we, clearly we have to make sure that there are no tax advantages to um, to, to housing relative to other investments and, and currently there are so I mean they have to come off basically that, that's just a sort of cynqui known of tax policies that you want to treat all the assets the same at the moment housing is still um, still sort positively Um, has positive tax features, so I would do that, plus I would would introduce gradually over time a land tax that that increases the tax on land, which brings down the price of land.
0: Yeah, a short comment on that, Bernard, just before the next question. I I would say I don't agree that a happy future for New Zealand has to see home ownership rates stay above 50 or 60%. I, I do think there's another way, but to achieve that other way, we need to fix our rental market. And we haven't talked a lot about that tonight. Um, there are a lot of co- European countries with much lower home ownership rates and much higher rental rates. And certainly citizens there are living happy, healthy lives with, with measures like security of tenure. So it's, it's, not, it's not the death of us if home ownership drops, but we have to fix the rental market as, as the corresponding measure.
1: So the form of... Um, you're quite right. But with no change in those um, rules on tenure, and there's no suggestion of anyone trying to change those at the moment, um, what we face is all of these you know, traditional New Zealand houses being turned into rental properties. To give you an example, uh, I moved to Wellington uh, three years ago. We, looked, we were looking to buy a house. It took us um, nine months or so to find a place we wanted. We were kicked out of two houses in that nine months by... Uh, landlords who are selling houses on or returning from home or whatever. And, and you know, um, this is a common experience. So until we have the, the huge volume of long tenancy, um, pro- essentially professional, large-scale um, uh, rental property that is owned by um, professional investors, people like the New Zealand Superfund or whoever, I I think you need to also push for um, increased home ownership. But that's my view. Sorry. And also
2: quality in that housing, Bernard. I've seen yes. you know, in my previous role at the Real Estate Institute, some of the properties that I've seen available for rent are simply it should not be it should not be legal to rent those out to people, to families, for money. Mm. It's just totally inappropriate. So, yes, a warrant of fitness.
3: Yes. So, question at the back here. Hi, Hi. my name's Steve Wren. Um, question is, like you mentioned like the whole supply thing we've t- only been mentioned as the Houston model. Well other places like Vienna and um, Singapore had huge housing crisis, Vienna back in the 1920s, Singapore in the, in the 1960s when we first got formed, they did a whole social intervention is where big state organisation or council organization owns 40, 50% of a housing, large percentage of a housing stock. Why don't we have this conversation about if you want to flood the market, that it needs to be these big social institutions to come in there, you rent to anyone, you don't worry about it, you get the supply, supply right. Because as someone said, the basic e- e- economics of if is the profit market, you're not going to flood 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 the supply gates.
1: So the question is, you know, why doesn't the government, for example, get involved and really ramp up, let's say, housing New Zealand um, to do it? I think there's a good good case for something like that, uh, and um, uh, the scale of demand that's necessary. You're right, is is very large, and with our current structure of our building in- industry at the moment, where so many builders are only building one or two houses a year, often standalone properties on on fringe, fringe uh, blocks of land, to get the real scale, the numbers of houses built, and to get the scale of the building industry, so a big company employing thousands of people for year upon year upon year, they need surety of demand, and ultimately the only player with the with the balance sheet that's big enough and the time horizon that's long enough to provide that surety of demand, at least in the in the short to medium term, is, is the government. So I, I, I agree there's a case, case for that. But others on the panel may have different views.
2: Um, look, the boom and bust approach of our market over the past few years certainly doesn't help, but scale is a big issue. You know, the reality is how often do you actually see um, more than a couple of hundred, like, building a couple of hundred houses in Auckland is building a lot of houses. Uh, and you know, when you're looking for a supply of ten thousand, I mean, a couple of hundred really doesn't make a lot of difference.
1: So let's say Arthur was in charge; he was the king of New Zealand, and said, "I want a hundred thousand houses in Auckland. How would you do it?"
5: Well, I mean, you have to do it over time, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the, our real problems, and one you know, somebody touched on this before, is that you know we have a shortage of builders, and, and Helen touched on it. Uh, and one of the reasons why we have a shortage of builders in New Zealand is because of the boom-bust cycle, and we've got a big neighbour next door that, when we have a have a bust, they, the builders go there, and they don't tend to come back uh, very much. Um, so, in terms of the the point that was raised, I, I would be taking the opportunities of when there's a, a downturn, a natural downturn in, in the economy, to ramp up the house building. Um, and I think there is a role for the, for the state in that, in that situation because they are the ones that would be, the only ones that would be in a position to do that. But it had two, two effects. One was that it would, um, it would increase the housing stock because it would be at a time when, when not many houses were being built. Uh, for instance, during the global financial crisis when the you know, number of houses being built plummeted, um, should, could keep that going. But also it keeps the builders here so that when the next, down, um, next upturn takes place and the private sector takes over again, those builders are in place for that for yeah. uptake. Uh, so I think there is quite a counter-cyclical role that could be considered there.
2: Just actually, too, if I can butt back in again, Arthur, the three-level walk-up style properties that we we're talking about, that's one of the reasons we are so attracted to them, is because a lot more of New Zealand's building contractors have the capacity to build them. You know, the people who can build the apartment buildings, there's only a couple of dozen of companies in Auckland with that capability, and they are busy.
1: Mm. Another question, um, perhaps down here,
3: yep. Uh, thanks Bernard, uh, my name is David Hay. Um, Arthur, when I was uh, learning economics, I was told that price is always a function of supply and demand. Yep, absolutely. We have kind of skirted around the demand yeah. side of the problem tonight. And it seems to me there's demand from both uh, population growth demand and investor demand And if we're going to create, you know, and I agree with you, we need a property price collapse and uh, fairly sharp, fairly soon. Any thoughts on the demand side of of creating that collapse?
5: Yeah. um, The reason why, you know, demand is increasing in Auckland because the population is increasing, basically. And that could be met by people owning their own houses, it could be met by people buying houses to rent out. Some people call those speculators. I, I think it's a pejorative term. Um, but in the end, those people will only buy those houses to rent out if, if the population's increasing. Otherwise, there wouldn't be much of a reason to, to buy them, right? So the underlying thought is that, okay, Auckland's increasing in population. Why is Auckland increasing in population? Well, everyone here knows that Auckland's a fantastic city, right? It's a great place to live. Uh, and that's where we sort of started this whole conversation, the Auckland Conversations. This is about Auckland, you know, what a great place to live. Well, there's more than 1, 1. 1.4 million people that want to live in Auckland. There's a, there's a whole lot more people. And I think that's fantastic. You know, we've got this tiny little country of four, four and a half million people with this one small city called Auckland and the rest of towns. I mean, Auckland is a small city, and, you know, it's, sort of, it's really when you come back from overseas and you come back to this small city, and you think, God, it's small. You know? It's, um, and, and, you, and yet the sort of parochialism of this place is extraordinary. It's a sort of small town in mentality. We still think, you know, Aucklanders still think of it, that they'd like it to be a country village, but, you know, it's actually a small city. 1.4 million is a small city. People want to live here, and why not have a big city in New Zealand? Why not at least have one medium-sized city, <laughs> sort of two to four million people? That's still just medium sized, probably hundred cities in China bigger than that, you know. I mean it's sort of so let's let's get round this problem of if you want to live in a rural place, go and live in, you know, sort of Rotorua or, or somewhere else, you know, Gisbon. If you want to live in an urban place, let's have one urban place in New Zealand, and that's called Auckland.
1: And um And also, our city is incredibly expensive for its size, so we're actually as expensive relative to incomes as San Francisco, which is where the world's biggest investment and wealth boom in history is going on right now. I mean, they build Google and Facebook and Apple. What do we have here in Auckland that justifies 10 times income? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, we have a question just down the back here.
4: I think it's vital that, all right. I think it's vital that we have housing for children because they must have stability in their schooling. Otherwise, what's going to happen to that generation that has not got um, a, a permanent place to live in? It's somehow or other we've got to do that. I feel there's far too many places that are vacant around the place, if you just go driving around, you see them. And I think we could do something about that. At one stage, I I mean, I've got lots of years behind me now, and (laughs) um, that the council used to go and inspect properties if they thought they were getting behindhand. Now, there's a lot of places, I think, that could do with a good, solid inspection. (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 and, okay. I mean, you know, if, if the council's got to fix it, well, that could go on their rates so they'd know what was going to happen there.
1: Mm. So, OK, so the, the question is...
4: Well, what's, what have you got that you can... And uh, I don't feel... One, one other thing, that there's too many um, lifestyle rocks... That's fine for the people who are on it, but there's a lot of infrastructure instru- there that's required. Those could be filled up.
1: OK, no, those are good points. Let's have one more question <laughs> from the audience. Now, I'm going to make an executive decision. Is there anyone in the audience below the age of 30 who hasn't had a question asked? So Let's, let's have a question from down the front here. So, so can we get a, a microphone to this? Not that I'm against people below the age of, or above the age of 30, it's just we haven't had as many of those voices tonight.
2: Yes, I'm pleased that there's one of us here. Um, I actually just wanted to ask something about uh, tactics. I agree around the um, having strong tenancy laws and for people who are in a situation like me in their late 20s and starting to think about families and buying homes and realising that that might not be um, such a, a dream that you can realise. And whether there's anything, I think there's a huge amount of disengagement Uh, and my social group certainly, around the fact that this might all be too hard. And I wanted to know whether there's any kind of specific tactics or next steps that you would think of to get uh, people my age engaged with this issue um, so that we can start to actually change things, particularly in government or in local council level.
0: Sure, just come along to the next Generation Zero Auckland meeting. <laughs> but no, I, I am serious. I think we've you know, we been reasonably effective, the Auckland team, at building up a pretty strong membership base, um, and I think that we're genuinely representative of a large proportion of, of young Aucklanders' views. Um, the... In in terms of tactics, we do a a range of different things. Someone on on Twitter's been calling uh, Generation Zero selfish. Um, I'm keen to have a chat to you after this and explain why our name is Generation Zero, because the comment was, well, you're only focused on your own generation, um, which I don't agree with. I think our values are pretty applicable across generations. But I think the tools we've chosen as sort of mediums for communication and change are good, solid research, looking into the issues, understanding them, finding out about them, and then figuring out you know, a, a viable argument and trying to present that to local decision makers. Um, we have focused a lot on trying to engage people, both in person meetings, but also digitally, through things like making it easy for young people and, and other people to submit their views through a council process like the unitary plan, and we will be continuing to do those things certainly in the upcoming unitary plan um, discussions and, and going forward. You know, for us, it's a this is a our goal is a, a zero carbon New Zealand by 2050, and we see you know a crucial part of that is building cities in the right way. So it's a long term game, and I think it does take a while to get organised. I think there is a, an important power vacuum or gap to fill. And I think young people do need to organise and get engaged and get passionate. Um, I don't think Generation Zero is the only way. I think there's lots of other um, organisations and, and ways to think about it and things that you can do. Um, happy, to, happy to have a chat to you after, if, yeah, if you're interested as Just well. Just one point. Arthur.
5: Yep. In San Francisco now, there's a group of, of young people who are fed up and not been able to have houses who go along to every planning hearing and support the people who want to increase the number of houses, okay? So there's this young person's pressure group that goes along and supports the developers. Um, Every time that they've got a battle with the San Francisco Council, basically saying, yes, we need extra supply, we need extra supply, and they support the developers, and they do that for every hearing that's going. I'd I'd recommend you form a group like that here.
2: I've got to congratulate Generation Zero for becoming, <laughs> because realistically, until you guys turned up, there really wasn't an organised support for, uh, on the public voice. You know, Yes, there were people at the table, yeah, there were people like us participating in the plan, but it's really important that the community actually has part of the conversation and that there is a counter to the view that, you know, do nothing, do nothing as fast as possible. You know, there has to be, there must be change and that needs to be positive change.
1: Just one final thing from me. Um, I would suggest what you're doing here today is part of that process of, of making a difference, engaging. Engage, um, engage, 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 as a rugby union referee might say. And vote, vote, vote your head off.
0: You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz
3: Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.